Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome to Know Your Bible. We're going to study the Bible for the next 30 minutes and we're going to do that a little differently than most religious TV programs. We're not going to tell you what we think you need to know. Uh, we're going to let you ask us what you'd like to know. So that's what we do here. And you'll see a phone number and a website at the bottom of the screen. Uh, that's what those are for, is for you to give us questions. Uh, we take your questions, put them in our stack of questions, and get to them just as quickly as we can. Uh, they'll be on the air in weeks ahead, uh, if you, especially if you send us an email or if you give us your name and address. Uh, when you call in, we'll get you an answer in the mail or in emails even faster, so we prefer that. So uh, we try to answer as many Bible questions as we can uh, each week on the air, and uh, we'll do that here in just a second. But you direct this program. Uh, you tell us what you'd like us to talk about. I'm Steve Tandy. This is Toby Levering. He's going to answer some of our questions. And Hi, Jeff Steve. Martin's going to answer some of the other ones. Morning, so Steve. Glad you guys are here and ready to go. Uh, viewers get our first one every week. So here's your first question. Who said to God, here am I, send me? Another famous quote for the Bible. We've been working on these a few weeks. Who said something? Uh, somebody, uh, and I'll give you a clue. He's in the Old Testament. And he said, here am I, send me. So... Oh, we'll give you that answer at the end of the program. All right, Toby, yep. I think I've been good enough we, to get a really high <laughs> position in heaven. Well, we have a question about that. Is that, so, is uh, that right or not? Well, I, you know, actually, I'd like the, uh, both of you guys to chime in on this. This is kind of an interesting theory. Um, uh, I read a book that says behavior here on earth determines your level in heaven. Is that true? Well, yeah, if you look into that theory about there being levels and different rewards and different, you know, what size your mansion will be and how all of that works, and there's some people who worked out some interesting theories on uh, that there are levels in heaven and you're rewarded differently and uh, heaven's kind of a different experience for everyone in the sense of the residing with God and, and spending eternity there. Um, one scripture I found uh, that is used as the basis for these theories is Revelation chapter 27, I'm sorry, verse 20, chapter 22, verse 12. This is not on the screen, but <clears throat> it's right at the end of the book. And Jesus is saying, and he says this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Well, some people use that and say, okay, well, you know, he's speaking here to give hope to Christians, and, you know, we're, we're saved in Christ, we have that eternal security in Christ, but then the reward that we're given is going to be different for each one. And some use the story, the parable of the talents that Jesus told, that, you know, they re were rewarded differently based on how they used what they had been given. 
well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's reward or your master's happiness, he said. So well, they piece together some scriptures and they give us a picture that, yes, what you do in your Christian walk and how much fruit you bear will determine kind of what your reward is like in heaven, that all Christians are going to get there, but it's going to be different levels of rewards. Well, on a human level, I guess I, I can understand that. It makes more sense that uh, some Christian who's uh, been a missionary their whole lives and brought millions of souls to Christ and and uh, planted churches and, and maybe died as a martyr, I, I would maybe kind of expect that their reward in heaven would be greater than someone who just... Uh, you know, uh, came to Christ right on their, uh, at the last moments of their life. Uh, but I don't know. The Bible doesn't really specifically say that. It's kind of like we have a theory, and then we use verses to, you know, kind of prove that theory. So well, I was going to be careful with that. Um, I'll say, in general, here's what we know about heaven. It's going to be great. It's going to be perfect. There's not going to be any more sin. And, and all of the old bad stuff of this world will have passed away. And that's another promise of Revelation. For the old order of things have passed away. There don't get no, any more tears, nor crying, nor death, nor mourning. Now, all of that stuff that comes from sin is, is not going to be anymore. And that's what's going to make heaven great. And the greatest part about it is, of course, that we will finally be united, reunited with Christ, with our Creator God. And so uh, whatever it is, it's going to be great. 1 Corinthians 2.9, I like what Paul Paul said about this. He says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So that's my thought on it. What do you guys, I don't know if you've heard that theory or have any thoughts on that? Uh, my answer on that has always been to quote Sister Marlena Williams. She was in a group one night. We were talking about heaven and size of mansions and all of that. And Marlena said, If I've just got one square foot to stand in. Yes. I'm going to be happy. I agree with that. So, <laughs> there may be all kinds of rewards, but yep. to just being there is going to be good exactly. enough. Exactly. 100%. 100%. <laughs> I do see some people, we, we use this phrase, another star in their crown. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think some people deserve a little, mm -hmm. <laughs> a little more somehow, but uh, God's going to handle that just fine. For, for sure. <laughs> all right. Got a question about uh, marriage and uh, uh, intimacy in marriage. If you ever wants to know uh, intimacy or sex in marriage just for having children or part of God's plan for marriage. Well, uh, no. Sex in marriage, intimacy in marriage is uh, one purpose is to propagate the race and to have children, uh, but that's not the only purpose by any means. There are lots of uh, reasons and purposes uh, 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 for having sex in marriage. I don't have time to go into all of them, but let me just mention a few here. Uh, number one, it makes a couple one flesh in a very special way. Uh, man, uh, men and women are supposed to leave their families and uh, unite to cling to each other and become one flesh. Now, uh, part of that is sexual and part of it is emotional and all that. Uh, sex is a very powerful Emotion, it's a very powerful thing that uh, does make people one flesh in a very uh, kind of a mysterious way, I guess. Uh, in fact, Paul said that uh, sexual sin 
is different than all other sins uh, because sex unites us in a very special way, makes us become one flesh. So that's one purpose of sex in marriage. Uh, secondly, it's a protection. Uh, when we have monogamous sex, uh, we're protected from all of the things that come with immoral sex, uh, STDs and all kinds of diseases and all that. Uh, a married couple who practices monogamous sex is protected from all of that. So that's a good thing. Uh, thirdly, I'd say that sex, the relationship there, strengthens and maintains a marriage in a way that other things don't. Uh, it is uh, part of the pleasure of marriage. Now, let me read you a verse from the Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs chapter 23, verses 18 and 19. Solomon says, Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Okay, so the Bible's pretty clear and open about uh, sex in a lot of ways, and if you think that's uh, PG-13, go read the Song of Solomon uh, and see what he said further about sex in marriage and the, the attraction that strengthens uh, and maintains. Uh, the Bible speaks about that positively, but it also mentions it negatively. Uh, Paul says that a spouse, a husband or a wife, should not withhold sex from the other one uh, because your bodies belong to each other in some mysterious way. So uh, don't withhold it from each other. So uh, there's a lot of purpose to sex, and we've covered just a few of them there. Uh, but to answer our viewer's question really quickly, no, sex is not just uh, for propagation of the race. It, uh, it does that, but does a whole lot of other things, too. All right, Jeff. Okay, got one about the Catholic Bible we're going to answer. Uh, why does the Catholic Bible contain books not in the Protestant Bible? Uh, so the Catholic Bible does contain a few more books than the Bible, or for, for the sake of comparison today, we'll call it the Protestant Bible. Uh, they have Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, Wisdom, Sirach, and Baruch, and, and a few others. Uh, if you go to um, Greek Orthodox religions that are parallel to Catholicism, you can see uh, a few more, a few less. Um, they also contain um, <clears throat> some extra writings in the books of Esther and Daniel. So if you take this whole group of additional books and writings... Uh, that's what we call the Apocrypha. That's what the Catholic Church calls it. That's what we call it. This is the Apocrypha. Uh, and these additions in texts are ancient. Uh, they are from biblical times, um, but they were never intended as Scripture. Uh, if, if you go back before, they were canonized, uh, nor do they ever claim to be Scripture, as sometimes we see in the Bible. It's also worth mentioning that Jesus or the writers of the New Testament never mentioned anything from the Apocrypha. At times we'll see the writers of the New Testament or Jesus himself uh, reference a verse in the Old Testament. Uh, we never see that with uh, the books or the writings from the Apocrypha. <clears throat> These weren't accepted uh, as Catholic canon until the Council of Trent, and this was as a response to the Protestant Reformation, and they were kind of late to the party because this happened in 1545 A.D., uh, so again, these were added 
uh, relatively speaking, very late in the game. And there was a lot of political strength behind adding these books um, to the Catholic Bible. Uh, so the reason that the Catholic Bible contains the Apocrypha and has more books uh, is because we do not recognize the Apocrypha as divine God-breathed scripture. All righty. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, that's a good question to lead me into talking about Bible study. Uh, if you take some of the Bible studies that uh, we offer, you'd probably learn about the Apocrypha and what's in the Bible and the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So a lot of questions we answer here on the program, uh, you can answer yourself if you'd study the Bible with Know Your Bible Study Tools. And we've got some of them that we've used over the years and thousands of people have taken and learned a lot about their Bible. Uh, this is the first set that we start people with because it's just so basic and uh, non-denominational, just a good study of the Bible introduces you to the Bible. Then we go into a little more detail, uh, help you understand the whole life of Jesus and the book of Acts and the beginning of the church and lots of things that uh, are in the Bible that these studies lead you through. Uh, similar to that, but a little bit different because it's online are some courses that we're happy to uh, share with you also. Uh, you can start these yourself. Just uh, log on to oneway.worldbibleschool.org and they will get you started with some excellent uh, Bible studies uh, that you can do on your phone, on your tablet, whenever, wherever you want. Uh, or you can take the print lessons uh, just by using our phone number, the website that's at the bottom of the screen. Tell us you'd like that free course, and we'll send you that first lesson about the Old Testament. Uh, when you complete it, you return it to us, and we pay the postage. Uh, we'll score it for you and send it back along with lesson number two, and that gives you a little accountability and helps you stay committed to studying the Bible. I won't ever ask you for money. won't put you on a mailing list or bother you in any other way. Uh, but we would like to help you study the Bible. So give us a call or log on, and we'll get that started for you. All right, Toby, yeah. Lord's Supper question. question. Question about the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 12, I'm sorry, 11, 27 through 32, talks about taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Does that mean if we sin, we cannot take communion? Well, my answer to that is no, that's not what that means. If it is what that means, no one could partake of communion because there's no one who comes to the table sinless and there's no one who comes uh, that hasn't sinned. And so if, if being sinless was a requirement, uh, no one would be partaking of communion. So that's absolutely not what it means. However, it does uh, mean that, well, let's look at the scripture to see what it means. How about that? First Corinthians 11:26 and following, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the lord and what's this unworthy manner mean let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who drink eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. See, the problem at Corinth was the fact that they had made a holy meal 
into something very commonplace. They treated it just as any other meal that they might eat any other day. And they were so worried about getting the good food and, and uh, who had brought what and all of that that they completely missed the point of the Lord's Supper. Their focus was not in the right place. And he says, we ought to come to the table examining ourselves and recognizing or discerning the body of Christ. So when we partake, it needs to be a serious moment. It means, needs to be a time of inward reflection, uh, uh, introspection, thinking about your life, thinking about your walk, and certainly thinking about the Lord and, and how He died and why He died and what He died for. And so in a way, that moment, uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper, helps us to focus and recenter ourselves on Christ which is where our thoughts and our lives need to be centered. So that's the point of examining ourselves, and that's, that's what we're supposed to do. So we, we can come to that moment, we can be like the Corinthians, and we can just partake and not give a thought to it. Got to just go through the motions or focus on other things. And so Paul uh, commands them and also us <laughs> to be introspective, to think, uh, to examine ourselves, uh, and to remember Christ's sacrifice. Hope that helps you. All right. Viewers, uh, got a very uh, astute question here, actually. If you can only be saved by Jesus' sacrifice, how were people saved who lived before Jesus? Well, that's good thinking. If uh, we, we say the only thing that saves us is the blood of Jesus, uh, how about all those people that lived before Jesus made that sacrifice for us. And the answer is uh, a timing problem, if you want to think of it that way. We think of things in time. Uh, the Bible says what uh, saves people is God's recognition of their faith. And that's true in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, Jesus' perfect life and perfect sacrifice is what atoned for our sins it's what made it possible for God to judge us righteous is because the price had been paid but uh, in a sense his sacrifice was retroactive I guess is the best way we can think of it uh, it paid for all sins for all time and whoever who qualifies for that is those who are credited with righteousness because of their faith now, I didn't make that phrase up. I found that in the Bible because that's what it says about Abraham. Let's read in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. It says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. All right, so that's the way the concept works is if we believe God, uh, we will do what he says. If we believe God, we'll obey him. And Abraham, we know the famous story. God said, would, would you sacrifice your son Isaac? And Abraham said, yes, I, if that's what you tell me to do, I'll do it. So all through the Bible, people are recognized for their faith. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. And it says, this man, this person, this woman was faithful. And it says, he did something. Uh, approved his faith, showed his faith, demonstrated his faith by obeying God. Uh, Abraham was told to leave his homeland. He left. That was faith. 
So uh, that's all through the Bible. We're saved by faith in the Old Testament, the New Testament. Jesus' sacrifice paid for all sins for all time. And when we obey Christ, I mean, when we uh, believe God, when we believe in Jesus, uh, we'll do whatever he says. So um, that's the way salvation works. And uh, retroactive, I guess, is the answer to our viewers' questions there. Jesus' blood paid for all sins in all times. Jeff, you got another angel question another here. You angels. seem to have got That's a few right. of these the last third, few weeks. Be an expert on angels. <laughs> That's right. Third week in a row. And maybe I will. I think it's kind of hard to be an expert on angels. Yeah. Uh, but this particular one says, what does the Bible say about guardian angels? Uh, and this is a pretty common term. I'm sure all of our viewers have heard this before. It just refers to an angel watching out uh, for you and then possibly interceding when things are about to go bad. Uh, oftentimes you'll hear of someone almost getting in a car wreck or having a near-death experience and they, they end up okay and someone will say, wow, you must have had a guardian angel watching out for you. And again, the Bible has a lot to say about angels, but if we read it all, uh, we still come up with uh, much more that we do not know uh, than what we do know. So what does the Bible have to say specifically about guardian angels? Uh, the closest that we can get to an answer is in Hebrews 1.14. Let's look at that. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Uh, from this verse, we can gather a few things. Number one, angels are real, which we know that from several different verses in the Bible. Number two, uh, they can interact with our world, uh, which is a very interesting fact. And number three... Uh, this is saying they serve those of us who are, uh, who are disciples, who are followers of Jesus. So the term guardian angel, based on that verse, is pretty accurate. And I wish I knew more details, uh, but the Bible doesn't really give us more details. But there are, uh, if you want to call them that, guardian angels among us. All right. Yeah, we don't know exactly how all that works, but... Mm -hmm. Well, I always think about that. If I've got a guardian angel, there's been a few times where he's been asleep at the switch. He, <laughs> he, 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 he's, he's slipped up a couple of times. Maybe there's something you needed to learn at that yeah. moment. Yeah. If, if he's supposed to really guard me all the time, sometimes he let me go. So. <laughs> we don't know. Let me invite you to visit the Church of Christ near you. We're sponsored and uh, kept on the air by Churches of Christ, and we'd like to thank a few of them each week. Uh, today, let me thank a few in western and northern Kansas. Agra and Mead are both uh, towns that have great congregations of the Church of Christ, folks that love the Lord and study the Bible a lot like we do here on Know Your Bible. Uh, they help keep us on the air. So we thank them, and if you live in one of those communities and uh, know a Church of Christ member, tell them that you saw them mentioned on Know Your Bible and you enjoy this program, and thanks for keeping it on. Uh, wherever you are, there's probably a Church of Christ close to you. Uh, if you're looking for a church home or uh, want to find a group of people that uh, live their lives and worship by the Bible, uh, visit the Church of Christ near you. All right, Toby, money problem. Yes, we got a uh, question about where does it say money is the root of all evil? And my answer to that is it doesn't say the money is the root of all evil. This is probably one of the most 
misunderstood uh, ideas from the Bible that's not in the Bible. never says anywhere that money is the root of all evil. It says something close to that, but the, the difference is important. Um, and so let's look at it from the verse of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So it's the love of money that's the problem. And lots of people of faith and God, lots of godly people have had money, had had great wealth. David and Solomon and Abraham, uh, they had lots of wealth, okay? But the difference was they didn't let their wealth have them. Money is amoral. It is neutral. It is a tool. And so the question is uh, not how much money you have. The question is what you do with the money that you have. And this is in the context of Paul uh, commanding Timothy to teach about contentment and godliness and why that's so important. So uh, it, it's not in the scripture. It's the love of money that's the root of all kind of not the root, but a root of all kinds of evil. And we see that. People are greedy for money. They'll do lots of things, uh, evil, immoral things, wicked things, vile things, all because of the love of money. So that's where it's found, and uh, that's what uh, the Scripture says about the love of money. All righty. Got a question about afterlife here. The viewer says, if the dead know nothing, Ecclesiastes 9.5, how can we live forever? Well, let's read Ecclesiastes 9.5 and then see if we can sort this out. Uh, Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, says, The dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And our viewer reads that little passage and says, Well, now, what's all this about eternal life? Uh, what about living in heaven? What about afterlife? Uh, Solomon right there said, The dead know nothing. It's all over. They're forgotten. Uh, they're dead all over like a rover when they die. So, What's it mean? Uh, context. We always talk context on this program. And you got to, especially with the book of Ecclesiastes, you got to get the context. Uh, the, Solomon says over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a key phrase. He says, under the sun. And that's what he's analyzing is life under the sun. Life just on earth, not considering anything about God, not considering anything about eternity. If you just live life for life under the sun, then Ecclesiastes makes sense. And what he says is, if you try to build up riches and be famous and all of that, uh, you think you've done something big, but he said, then you die. And you don't know nothing and you're forgotten and your memory is gone. Well, that's what happens if you don't consider eternity. If you consider just life on this earth, that's what it means. So under the sun, over and over he says that, and he concludes that life under the sun is vanity. It's all foolishness. It's just blowing in the wind if all you consider is life on earth. So read Ecclesiastes that way, and it makes total sense. It teaches us a lot. Let's make sure we get our trivia question answered today. And it was, who said to God, here am I, send me? Well, famous 
person who said that was Isaiah. Read Isaiah 6, 8. Uh, he saw God. He was awestruck. Uh, and he wondered who would go tell people about God. And he said, I'm here, send me. Glad you've been with us today. Hope you come back next week. And until then, have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.